0: This is God's Word, and I would remind you, it was written a long time ago, but this uh, showcases the glory of God that He wrote it a long time ago, but when He wrote it, it was written for those people, and it was written for you today at the same time. That's how clever God is, that He can do both. This is His Word for you. The words of Agar, son of Jaca the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield. To those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. Lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth. The needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, the way of a man Well the virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king. A fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, at all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it's in the king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Yeah, this is a fun chapter. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that not all portions of Scripture are equally easy. We thank you for passages like this that again remind us of humility as we come before them and they're hard, they're difficult. And we pray that you would give us understanding or we ask that you would give life and light to your word. It's your word. It tells us your truth. We ask for your understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you saw the, uh, the article or the, the news media a couple of months ago. Uh, it was uh, in Brazil. I've mentioned these before. I think it's just so fascinating, so interesting. They discovered a new tribe living in the Amazon jungle of Brazil that had never had outside contact before. And for the first time in human history, uh, they were able to photograph them uh, as they sent a drone over uh, with video camera on the drone. And you have all of these amazing I, – I just, again – The emotional moment that had to have been happening as this tribe that lives in the Amazon that's still living, you know, they're wearing animal skins that they've killed and, you know, and tanned themselves and to have a drone hovering over their village. You have these amazing, you know, photos of these people looking at it like (laughs) what on earth is going on? You know, the nation of Brazil has federally protected these people groups, so you're not legally allowed to go interact with them. You can't share the gospel or anything, which is sad. But to think about, again, what would that be like? I mean, if that law was repealed and people were able to go in, like, what would that be like? Because you know, right now, those tribes live in the center of their entire world. I mean, the center of everything they know is like a five-mile circle in the middle of the jungle. And can you imagine just how your brain would melt to, like, realize that there's people that speak different languages, that have different hair color and eye color that they've never seen before, or skin color that they've never seen before, that live on the other side of oceans that they don't know exist, that drive cars, And flying airplanes. And I understand why Brazil has made that federal law. Because can you imagine the emotional trauma that would be required to process that your little region isn't the center of the known world? Because that's what it is for them right now. Everything they experience is the center of the known world. And for them to kind of come into modernity, to come into the real world as we would know it, they have to realize that they don't even live on the fringes of reality. They live in the backwater of reality. I mean, if there is a place that is as far from the center of the known world, they live there currently. And to think of the emotional difficulty it would be to have to process going from I'm the center of the world to I don't even know where the center is. You know, that's huge. And you know how we know that's huge? is because this is the exact emotional process the book of Proverbs has been walking us through now for 30 chapters, well, 29 until today to lay out the paths of wisdom and the fool. And the fool, as Proverbs presents it, is the person who says the center of the known universe is this guy. It's me. I'm the center of the known world. I'm the center of of ethics. I'm the center of value. I'm the center of meaning. Everything that needs to happen needs to benefit me. I'll behave toward others in a way that benefits me. I'll behave toward my parents in a way that benefits me. I'll behave toward my employers or employees in a way that benefits me. It's all about me. And Proverbs has been abundantly clear. That is what a fool looks like. And it's been abundantly clear that the path that that fool treads is very wide. It's initially very easy, but it is very clear where the end goes. It leads to destruction. It leads to death. It it leads to destruction in this world. It doesn't last. It can't stay. It's not going to be successful. But it ultimately leads to death in the world to come. It creates a relationship where a person goes into the afterlife saying, look, life is all about me. I'm my own God. I'm my own boss. And then they get to the life to come and realize, oh, no, I was tragically wrong. The wise, on the other hand, it's a different path. This uh, is a person who understands that they're not the center of the known world, that the one who made it is. You see, he gets to be the center of creation because he is uncreated. He spoke it into existence. He's the one who's formed and fashioned it. It's his reality for he has made it and he is the center. Who determines what's right and wrong? Not me. The one who's made right and wrong for he is the determinant. Who's the one who determines what is successful or what's righteous or what's good or what's bad or what is the way we are to live. Well, God does because he's the one who's made it. He is the one who is sovereignly, kingly, over and in charge of everything. And you see, he's framed out as we've talked about it through the New Testament. Our order of worship has already explained this for us. This is the natural trajectory of man. All men and women, boys and girls, are born fools. Born fixated on self. Born with a festering problem in the soul. And again, any, you can ask anybody who's raised children. You don't have to teach them to be evil. You don't have to teach them on how to be inventive in evil. Sometimes, actually, you're amazed at how clever they are at it. Wow, kid, like... That is a shocking lie. You don't teach them that. They come out knowing that the same way you did. Because it's the nature of the human condition. To have life oriented around self. To have life fixated on self. To have me be the center of the known universe. The problem is the scriptures outline very clearly that's not an okay situation. That is ultimately what leads people to the afterlife into hell, leads people into God's judgment for righteous or for unrighteously hating God, fighting against him. And instead, Christ offers a new pattern, the pattern that we've seen in the scriptures, which is for him to die in our place, for him to undergo the judgment that we deserve, for him to take all of the, the wickedness that we have done, and to pay the cost to pay the price. We understand this. I mean, sometimes we don't like to admit it, but we understand that when we do bad things, that there's consequences. Always, all actions have consequences. And the heart of the gospel is that Christ Jesus has taken the consequences for us and given us all the ones we don't deserve, all the good ones. But then we get to chapter 30, and, and chapter 30 of Proverbs, and these are hard books, as uh, they deal with wisdom in a way that is intriguing and engaging, because it, it puts it out there where we're like, I, I kind of understand, but I'm not entirely sure. I mean, some of these Proverbs kind of make me giggle a little bit, because they're funny, and some of them I'm like, oh, I don't think I like this. And because what God is doing in this book and in this chapter is saying, look, if, if you've been redeemed if you've been transformed, if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, this is the way to a good life. This is what holy living looks like. And chapter 30 is particularly difficult because much like the tribe in Brazil that would have to go through that emotional trauma of realizing they're not the center of the known world, chapter 30 outlines what it means to be a Christian in terms of how they feel and how they think and how they behave. And Christians are people who acknowledge that they are not the center of the known world. That only God is the center of the known world, that only he has that position of authority. And instead, uh, the result is that we have, and I'm going to use a word that is kind of really uh, an unpleasant or dirty word in our current culture, uh, that we are to be people of modesty. Another word for that would be humility. Another way to say that would be humble and holy balance. But modesty, is it used to not refer to clothing only. It used to refer to an entire style of living in which people were grounded and humble and not vulgar. That's what chapter 30 is presenting for us, and we're going to see five different ways that it does that very rapidly. <laughs> First is it, it outlines for the Christian a modesty of spirit, a humility of heart. Jesus explains this in Matthew 5 as being poor in spirit, a poverty in spirit. As the book starts, and you, you get really a right ordering of the world. As the author kind of begins with, as some of us have felt, but usually only when we're in trouble, a man saying, "Look, I, I'm an idiot." Verse 2, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I'm dumb. And he's not meaning that in the sense of like I have no IQ. He's not meaning that in the sense of like I am uh, unable to think. What he's meaning is you go back and survey the choices that I've made and they are a litany of poor choices. You want to to have a lesson on what bad decisions look like? Go back and survey my choices. (laughs) If you want to know what a bad decision is, let me make that for you in my own ability, in my own merit, and in my own strength. For some of you, this is your story. You're like, hey, you want a lesson in, in poor decision making? Let me give you a lecture in poor decision making. And it will come from my own first hand experience that's what the author here is doing I'm too stupid to me I I don't have understanding I I don't have wisdom where is wisdom to be found not in me but in God verse 4 who has ascended to heaven and come down who's gathered the wind in his fist this echoes of Job doesn't it (laughs) who has the ability to do these things and to know these things because I don't Who's established the ends of the earth? What is his name? What's his son's name? (laughs) Only God knows what true wisdom is. And then the amazing ordering here of, again, where is wisdom? What is wisdom? Well, verses 5, 6, it's found in his word. This God who knows wisdom, who is the center of the known world, for he made it, has spoken truth into that creation. We live in a culture that is just scrambling for truth. I mean, how many times just this week alone did you hear debated over whether or not something was fake news? Or false flag because even our culture can't decide what's right and wrong. Our culture can't tell you what's true and what's not. Only the Lord knows. And what a humility of spirit to not be puffed up with self. To not think that I have all of the answers. But that God does. I mean is there anything less American than this? That the foundation of Christianity is to say, I don't have all of the answers. That I don't have it all figured out. That I don't know the inner workings of every aspect of creation, but I know the one who does. So when it comes time to give help or to give counsel, I will give you God's word, not my own. When it comes time for me to preach, I'm going to preach you God's word, not my own. Because the foundation of Christianity is this modesty of spirit, a poverty of spirit to admit that we don't have all the answers in ourselves, but they are in God's word. That would be hard enough to just finish the sermon there, wouldn't it? We could just stop with that. I mean, how many of us like to admit we don't know everything? Everything. You're only not laughing because I know your feelings are hurt. It's okay. I understand. <laughs> but moves on now from a, a poverty of spirit, a poverty of heart, to a poverty of desire. A modesty of desire. A modesty if of contentment. And again, ooh, this is so un-American. Two things I ask you. This is verse 7. Do not deny them to me before I die. This is a request of God saying, look, what is the end goal of my life? If I need to know what the trajectory of my life is going to be, who who dies with the most toys wins, right? Right? You feel me? No, that's not the right answer, right? (laughs) Two things I've asked of you, deny them not to me before I die. What is it that I need to be? What's the goal of my life? If I'm going to die and it be counted as a success, what will it be? To have falsehood and lying removed from me, to be truthful, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with food that's needful, contentment. And this is I, again, I love this. I love the deception of the human heart, because most of us are sitting here going, "Well, you know, I mean, I'm content." I mean, I really, I'm content. I like my life. I like what God's given me. I like the people around me. I like how much money I make. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd take a 20% raise. I wouldn't complain. But you know, but I just want to go back and pause for just a moment and think. Last two weeks, we've had a lottery, one that was just under 800 million dollars, and one that was 1.6 billion dollars. Both of which were won in the Carolinas. Funny enough. How many of you were like, yeah, but I'd like to really win that? You know, I mean, how much better would my life have been if I had won that? I mean, how much easier would it have been if I just won $1.6 billion? There was one person who won that out in, I think, the coast of South Carolina, right? I don't know where, but... You know, the funny thing is, is that even the pagan world has well documented this, that if you want to destroy your life, if you want to be a miserable human being, win the lottery. Their life expectancy plummets. They die very early, either because they indulge themselves so much that it kills them or other people kidnap or kill them. Their life expectancy plummets their uh, happiness of how much they think that they're actually happy, funny enough, it falls like a ball off a table. They're miserable. Most of them actually declare bankruptcy within like five to ten years, which is amazing to think about I mean, at $1.6 billion, you'd have to work really hard. Funny enough, they do, and they still spend it. <laughs> it's funny how, how our hearts, we lie to ourselves, don't we? Oh, I'm content. I'd take $1.6 billion in a heartbeat. And my life would be better for it. That See, that's actually the kicker, isn't it? That my life would be better for it. And the justifications we could pull, oh, oh, I'd give so much to the church. <laughs> But instead, God knows how the human heart works. And he says, look, this is why contentment is a thing and why it's so important. Because verse 9, if I don't have it, I'm either going to go to one end of the pendulum and I'm going to be full. And I'm going to say, who's God? I don't care about him because I have $1.6 billion in the bank. Or I'm going to be so poor that I'm going to steal and I'm going to shame his name because I'm an evil person. Because God knows the human heart. And when it's filled with self... It pours out death. I mean, only humans can be so spectacular to have $1.6 billion and it'd be a bad thing. I mean, how bad do we have to be for that to be a problem? 15 through 17, again, highlight that same kind of scenario. The leech, I hate leeches. They're disgusting creatures. <laughs> ah. Down in Atlanta where we lived, they used to be all the time. You couldn't go in the water. It was disgusting. The leech has two daughters. Worst names ever. Give and give. More. Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. There's kind of your, your uh, kind of phraseology here for much of this chapter is three, no, no, maybe four. Never satisfied. Shield the, the grave. <laughs> is the grave ever satisfied? Well that is always wanting more. And funny enough, it's really effective at that. It's always getting more. Barren womb, never enough, once more. Land that's never satisfied with water. Those of you that came from California, I'm not going to mention you. Uh, And the fire that never says enough. It's constantly this, this craving, this desiring, this just longing for more. And again, what a contrast between what God's children are called to be and what the world offers. Our world offers a value set that prizes more. He who dies with the most toys wins she who makes the most just just satisfy those longings just a little bit more makes me want to barf every christmas with the, the luxury car commercials i hate them and i mean that with the actual capital h i hate them because it's just playing on our longings for more you see, the, the, the contrast here is the fool is the one who thinks that cars can satisfy that. Or people can satisfy that. Or sexual pleasure can satisfy that. Or, or anything apart from God can satisfy that. That's what the fool is is the person that's like, you know what, if I get enough stuff, maybe I'll stop feeling lonely. No, it doesn't work. Go read a biography of Michael Jackson. It doesn't work. Only God can satisfy that longing. That modesty doesn't just stop with our longings, our desires, it then manifests itself in our social relationships. 10 through 14, how do we interact with one another? Don't be a servant who slanders his master. We have a modesty of speech. We don't don't talk badly about others, even if they're our boss, even if they're a buffoon. We're not going to be those children who curse their parents. Again, remembering Old Testament times, that was punishable by death. Lots of us would not be here right now, let's be honest. 12 those who think of themselves as so pure and holy and clean and tragically unaware of themselves I'll let you into my life just a little bit one of my greatest fears for myself is that i will have a tragic lack of self-awareness i would much rather cry my eyes out because i find out hard truths about myself than not know i'm a fool Thirteen, there are those, how lofty of their eyes, I love how this disphrases it, how high their eyelids lift. They're so stuck up, they blink up. (laughs) And then those whose teeth are swords, their fangs are knives, violence that pours from them. Their social relationships are destructive, they're poisonous. This is another part in which uh, Christianity offers something different. It offers a body that builds together, that encourages, that nourishes, that loves, and shows kindness and affection versus showing unwholesome competition, destruction, and self-seeking. You see, this is what God is correcting here, is that these relationships of, of slander, of scorn, judgmentalism, Pride, violence, all of these manifestations, the poison of an unredeemed life, those are transformed by the inner working of the Spirit of God so that the church is to be different. Now, realistically, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. I mean, we'll be perfect once we all die. That, that will happen. But when we live together, we're not going to be perfect with that. People will still hurt you in the church. Dear saints will still harm you. There will still be things that happen. But again, the trajectory of the saints of God, the people of God, is that there is a new modesty of interaction with each other. We show restraint. When you're livid at someone, you actually have the ability to not say all of that. (laughs) This humility is, uh, this is, I think, what, Part of what makes this chapter so intriguing is that it actually, it doesn't just deal only with people. It next spills over actually into creation itself. That I think Christians, and this is I think a point that needs to be talked about a little bit more in Reformed circles, is that it's actually going to give us a humility with how we even interact with nature, how we interact with creation 18 to 19, 24 through 28, really just an intriguing sort of uh, modesty, a humility uh, that overflows from just thinking about creation. And I I think this is a fun one. You get the impression that this is a a little bit of a, maybe a person who likes to go for a wander in the woods, a little bit of a philosopher, somebody who just kind of gets excited about the way that nature works, and you have these kind of two little thought uh, experiments there are three things that are too wonderful for me. Verse 18, there are four I don't understand. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I'm like, man, I don't understand how these things work. The wave of an eagle in the sky, watching how the birds soar. That is really an amazing thing. I mean, you know, their bones are hollow and they don't have stomachs. That's why they poo all the time is so that they don't hold their waist inside them so that they're lighter, so they're able to actually ride the currents. Amazing creatures amazing creatures. And God's made them so they grow not just their own wings, but they grow a repairing covering for the wing. feathers. It's amazing. Feathers are feathers are the most unbelievable thing. All right, so weird science stuff. I'm just going to go here for a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're going to have to go with me so we can marvel at what God is doing. The propane industry is going through a little bit of a revolution right now. In fact, actually it's all of the compressed gas industry because right now the big problem on how much they can sell things is how much you can fit in a tank before it explodes and it's really inconvenient because exploding things is inconvenient but the weird thing is is one of the things they figured out on how to decrease gas pressure in a tank i'm not making this up is to add feathers add feathers You add feathers, and the gas molecules go into the little nooks and crannies and crevices of the feathers, and they stop banging against each other, and they stop the thing from exploding. You pack it with feathers, and then you put propane in, and it will hold three times as much. Is that not the weirdest thing you've heard today? (laughs) The things I read for you. It's not for you, that's for me, I'll be honest. But you see, you know, what, the, what the author here is doing is like, look, let's just pause for a moment. And think about the birds. They're unbelievable creatures. The serpent of a rock, if some of you probably saw the video this week that kind of came out. It was somebody videoing from like their hotel room or whatever, which was showing a uh, gigantic like constrictor climbing a telephone pole. It was like a 15-foot snake climbing the pole five-foot chunks at a time. It was amazing. The snake would go up, make a wrap, and then as the bottom part was wrapping up under it, the next would go up the next five foot, and then it would wrap and then push itself up. It was amazing because it didn't like curl itself up the whole way up. It was like the way we would twist a coat hanger around it. It was the most mind-blowing thing. Amazing. Go get lost on YouTube. Watch videos of how snakes slither. (laughs) Actually, a good use of Sunday if you marvel at how God made them. I'll be honest with you. The way of a ship on the high seas. I fell down that YouTube hole a couple of months ago watching how ships, they've actually documented them going over rogue waves and tsunamis. You know, rogue wave is like this 150-foot wave that just comes out of nowhere, and they have these ships. They now have videos of them going up over these things, and it's amazing because it's a ship, you know, 20 times the size of this building that all you can see is sky, and then all you can see is water. It's amazing. It's amazing. And then the last one. This is maybe phrasing on this one could be a touch different in the ESV. There are things that I just don't understand that are too much to marvel. The love between a man and a woman. I mean, you remember what that was like, right? Where you're like, it makes no sense. I mean, no sense. But yeah, the way that the orphans fire off, you drive all night long to go see that. Spouse doesn't matter. You can move heaven and earth. The way that love works in the human brain, again, the, the strength that comes from it. And it is unexplainable. Science today still has no idea what causes some men to fall in love with some women and some women to fall in love with some men. It is unexplainable by science. And yet it's one of the most... Strong biological responses in the human body, and science has no way to account for it. This here is not talking about the, the the sexual function as much as it's talking about like the romantic love aspect. We have no category to explain it medically. To marvel at how God has designed. Creation and to be able to sit under that in 24 and following, he actually now starts considering animals and going, What can I learn from the animals? There are amazing things that animals do and do better than us. Ants, their ability to store up stuff and the industry with which they spend doing it. Ants are a people not strong. No joke, you step on them, they die. (laughs) You get a magnifying glass at the right angle, they pop. (laughs) <laughs> but yet, they work hard to provide their food in the summer so that when they don't have it, they're still fine. They're amazing creatures. I mean, they're really shocking. Did you see any of the things with the flooding that happened from Florence and from Michael? To see any of the fire ant balls? Have y'all, yeah, These are amazing things, right? Ants have the ability, they drown in water. But if you take an en- entire colony and dump them in water, what they do is they form a ball that turns on the inside so that the ants on the bottom hold their breath until they almost drown and then they climb up and the ants that have been on top that have been breathing fine go down to the bottom and the entire colony can survive for weeks floating. Amazing creatures. Rock badgers. Uh, Rock badgers do not think honey badger. Wrong thing. (laughs) Wrong thing altogether. I did that all of my childhood, actually until studying for this sermon. I never understood it because I'm like, the rock badgers are people not mighty. I'm like, honey badgers, legit crazy mighty. I mean, those things will like kill hippos. They're insane. No, rock badgers are different. In fact, actually, uh, y'all might be the only ones that have ever seen them probably in South Africa. They're like uh, mice. They're like big mice kind of things. They're, they're like this big. and the biggest, they'll get to be six pounds at the biggest, which makes them... Prime munchings for bigger predators. And so the way they don't turn into munchings and crunchings is they hide in the rocks. So the big predators can't get them. And they're everywhere. Because they know how to hide. They're wise. They're clever critters. Instead of going to combat, they go hide in the home. Make their homes in the cliffs and the rocks so that nothing can find them. Locusts, again, have no king. Think about this. I mean, they exist without bureaucracy. They don't have a president to tell them what to do. They don't have a Congress to tell them how to feel. They don't have a House of Representatives to tell them what's right and wrong. They just eat, and yet they march all in rank, and the entire thing figures out how to move. And again, they still don't know how they do it. How do they determine where to go as a group and still do it? Again, watch the migration of birds or bats and like when the, the huge numbers and how they operate. It's <laughs> unbelievably complicated math, and they're doing it with these tiny, itty-bitty little brains that their bodies just do. It's amazing. Last one. Uh, if we're going to bl- paraphrase this last one, let's put it in maybe kind of more South Carolina terms. Don't think lizard, think palmetto bug. <laughs> right? The lizard you can catch in your hands if you're fast enough. Right? I mean, how many hours have you spent as kids trying to catch lizards? Uh, think roach, you know, palmetto bug. and You can step on them, you can smash them, and they're natty, nasty critters, and they'll pop, and they're all disgusting. And everything. But yet, where do they live? Everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter you go to the nicest home in town, everywhere in the south. Same thing with the lizards. They're little critters. You can catch them with your hands, but if you go into a castle dry land like this, you know, King Palace is gonna have them. They figured out how to climb walls, they figured out how to get over every sort of barrier. They live everywhere. They're very clever critters. And again, look at, look at the difference in relationship that this person has with creation. What a humility of spirit that they're willing to learn from the lizards. They're willing to learn from the rock rats. I mean, that's really what they are. I mean, when was the last time you sat down and contemplated God's wisdom in the roaches? But that's what this guy's doing. He's contemplating like, look, God has made this world in the most unbelievably complicated way and there's so much I can learn and I don't have all the answers. God does. And some of those answers he put in his word and some of those answers he put in the ants and I can learn from them. You hear that humility there? A willingness to learn from God and what he's doing Versus thinking, I've got it all sorted out. I'm fine. Thanks, God. I'll pass. I'm doing a good job myself. See how that works out for you. <laughs> Lastly, verses 29 through 33. A modesty of carriage. Yes, I'm channeling my inner Downson Abbey with this one. Uh, the manner with which we comport ourselves, the way we hold ourselves, the way we, we carry ourselves. There are three things that are stately in their tread. Four that are stately in their stride. Hint, hint, this is not good. Just posturing. The lion, which is the mightiest among the beasts, and it goes everywhere, kind of head high. The strutting rooster. Yeah, I'm going to just go again. It's probably not a good illustration here. This is not like, hey, you should do this. The he-goat. Yep, you definitely shouldn't do this. And a king whose army is with him. He's so proud because look at how much power he has behind him. Oh, he's such a big fella. Think of peacock again. Just parading. But again, isn't that the culture that we're raised in? I mean, if you've got it, flaunt it. I mean, is that not, again, the culture that we live in is to show off all of your excess, to show off all of your wealth, to show off your beauty, to show off your body, to show off everything. I mean, is it not, I mean, probably a better mascot, not the bald eagle, but maybe the, the preening peacock. Hey, look at all the pretties. Look at what I am. Look at how special I am. You see, and the problem with that is that it's actually, in many cases, calling attention to all the wrong things. And verses 32 and 33 kind of give us the, the response here. Look, if you've been foolish, if you've been this person, if you've been this person that's so filled with self-wisdom, well, first thing you need you need to stop talking. If your lips are flapping and the only thing they're praising is you, you need to stop the lips from moving. And then after you stop the lips from moving, then you need to contemplate what happens. Cause and effect. Milk produces curds. A punch in the nose, it will bleed. Cause and effect. If I walk up and hit you in the face as hard as I can, it won't be that hard because I'm not that strong, but your nose will probably still bleed. Likewise, when you compress anger, it's going to produce strife, cause and effect. If you're the fool and you've been living filled with the wisdom of self, guess what? Bad things follow because you're a fool. Instead, God offers a different pattern. He offers this great exchange that Jesus takes all of the consequences of your evil and your foolishness, everything you've done in the past, he takes. Takes it to the cross with him and instead offers a different way bow the knee, not to self, but to the God who made you. And when you do that, he gives all blessing, all mercy, all grace, all kindness, all generosity follows from being in his home. Because realistically, our homes are very poor and pale in comparison to God's home. I mean, he made all of this. He's not lacking on resources. I mean, our homes are lovely, but they're filled with limited budgets, right? He has no limit to his budget. Just good common sense says you bow the knee. Confess your sins. Confess your patterns of foolishness. Bow the knee. Serve Christ. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for your word and how it challenges us to even learn from the ants. Lord, we confess we, we're prone. I mean, we like to, to believe ourselves, to think about ourselves. We, we like ourselves way too much. Forgive us. Forgive us for Christ's sake, that we would be cleansed of self, the love of self, the value of self, the, the pride of self, that we may be filled with the love of God. And then have a right ordering of the self. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.